Gospel according to Matthew, the fourth chapter. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. After last Sunday's one-week field trip to hear a story from the Gospel of John, this morning, in this liturgical year A, the year of Matthew, we are once again back in Matthew's Gospel, where that reading I just read starts in chapter 4, verse 12, above which, in my Bible, there's a heading that says that at this point, Jesus is beginning his public ministry having here and now apparently decided that it's no longer time to be preparing for the things he came to earth to do, but now it's time to start doing the things he came to earth to do. The turning away from private prayers and preparations to public preaching and proclamations, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say, that turning comprised two events. First, his baptism by John the Baptist, where he was visibly anointed with the Holy Spirit and audibly named God's own beloved Son by a voice that spoke from heaven, which led to the second event, as immediately then after his baptism, he is somehow spiritually compelled by the Holy Spirit, not quite just yet to public ministry, but first of all, rather, into the lonely ruggedness of the Judean wilderness, where for 40 days he fasted and prayed and was tempted by the tempter, the tempter, whom Matthew also refers to in that story with two of his other names, Satan and the devil, who in those 40 days did the best he could do to convince Jesus that his understanding of who he was and his understanding of where being who he was would now lead him was based on some serious misunderstandings of God and how things get done in the real world. We will come back to that story in a few weeks on the first Sunday of Lent as we, during the season of Lent, among other things, are invited to our own wildernesses 
to look our own demons in the eye, than to consider what are the ways that they, and the fear they almost inevitably lead with, seek to turn us from the faithful paths we're called to walk. In that confrontation in the wilderness, the primary temptation behind all the temptations the tempter threw at Jesus was the temptation to trust, to believe in him. When he told him that there was an easier way, a non-suffering way, a take-no-prisoners glorious way to go about being God's son rather than the way of suffering that Jesus was already beginning to think was the path the Father was calling him toward. Satan being sneaky good at the evil he is good at. Didn't say, God is lying to you, Jesus. Satan rather quoted Bible verses. Essentially to say, you're misunderstanding God. Jesus, you're his son, for God's sake. Use it. It's what he'd want you to do. Here, let me show you a few more Bible verses that back me up. Jesus, it turns out, knew his Bible better than Satan did. And he fended off the temptation thrown at him by Satan's cherry-picked Bible verses. Which then takes us to our text for today. Where we are told that Jesus began his public ministry when he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested. John the Baptist, we were told earlier, had been called by God to be the one that the prophet Isaiah had spoken of centuries earlier when he said there would be one whose voice in the wilderness would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. But now with John's arrest, the preparer of the way has done all that he will do, and it is now time for the one who will say, I am the way to do what he came to do. By the way, Matthew tells us later that the one who arrested John the Baptist was King Herod. Who had John arrested? Because John, in his never-ending and loud and annoying preaching, against sin was loudly and annoyingly telling everyone that Herod had sinned when he had seduced and then married his brother Philip's wife, with whom he was now, said John, blatantly living in sin. And so Herod put John in prison, publicly anyway, to shut him up. The shutting up would be complete down the road when John, still in prison, would be executed. In this here, at the beginning mention of John's arrest, shadowy ominousness makes its way yet again into the story. As we are once again reminded, just like we were reminded a few weeks ago when this particular King Herod's dad, who likes to go by Herod the Great, he's like the son of that, responded to the Christmas story by having his soldiers kill all the baby boys they could find in Bethlehem. Here now, 30 years later, we are once again reminded by this next generation of Herod that when it comes to the story that Jesus came not just to tell, but to in the flesh be, not everyone is going to be a fan. For Jesus' powerful reinterpretation of power 
in the direction of not fear, but of love and mercy, will absolutely and absolutely accurately be heard by powers that be as the threat to them and their ways and their power that it absolutely is. Back to the text, which says that when John, Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, which on first impression kind of sounds like a retreat, except that it isn't. Because unlike his dad, Herod, the self-professed great, who ruled over the entire region, this next generation of Herod, whose actual name was Herod Antipas, ruled over one-fourth of the region, which, as it turns out, included Galilee. Indeed, this Herod, Herod Antipas, trying to prove some greatness in a, of his own in the eyes of his boss, Tiberius Caesar, built a brand new city on the western bank of the Sea of Galilee, and he called it, oh, this is, this is scoring points with the boss, he called it Tiberius in honor of the Caesar. And he built himself a palace there. So he didn't, in fact, withdraw to Galilee to get away from Herod. He went to Galilee, Matthew says, because he wasn't going to let demons or kings turn him from the path he believed he was called to walk. A path which Matthew says is a path which Isaiah the prophet also centuries earlier had prophesied would be a path that began in Galilee, which by Isaiah's time had become known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Gentiles being the Jewish word for not Jews, because Galilee's population by this time, in large part because of wars and the population shifts that occur, when wars occur, Galilee was by now a very diverse place and thus for its diversity was looked down upon by Jewish nationalists and purists. We are reminded here as we are reminded elsewhere that this Messiah who had been promised to the Jews didn't come to be a savior of only Jews but of all people. Nazareth, Jesus' boyhood hometown is in Galilee. It's not where he went. He went to a town that would become his ministry home base for the next year or two or even three, a, a town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, 10 miles or so from Tiberias. But unlike Tiberias, this glitzy new capital city, this was an old and small and blue collar town whose economy was supported by farmers who farmed the land to the north and west of the town and by fishermen who fished the waters just immediately to the south of the town. The town was called Kephar Nahum, the village of Nahum, Capernaum. And there, Matthew 4, 17 tells us, in and around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus now finally, at last, after all the introductions and preparations and temptations, opens his mouth for the first time publicly to speak. And what he says is this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, which in Matthew's words is word for word, literally exactly the very same thing John the Baptist had also said when he preached, note to Herod, you can imprison the prophet, but you cannot imprison the word of God. That word repent, by the way, in both Hebrew and Greek literally means to turn around, 
But in that sense, it can then further be understood to mean either turning around and away from something or turning around and toward something. Take it to mean both at the same time, which I believe we're meant to do. And, and what I think Jesus and John are both saying is that in the kingdom of heaven, which John did come to usher in and Jesus came to walk in, there is both turning from and turning toward to be doing. Put it another way, the preaching and teaching, we are now at last going to hear Jesus go on to preach and teach in places like the Sermon on the Mount, for example, come next week, can pretty much be summarized like this. Turn away from the sinning you're doing to turn toward the grace and mercy of the Savior of sinners then to turn with grace and mercy toward your neighbor and toward the world and the loving that needs doing. Which takes us to Matthew 18, 4, verse 18, where we now read of Jesus calling his first disciples. Actually, that's not quite correct. For the call to repentance in Matthew 4, 17 actually literally takes us to... <clears throat> is this blank white space between verses 17 and verses 18. A blank white space during which, do you know how much time passes? Between Jesus arriving in Capernaum and then going on to call the disciples as he's now going to do because they happen to live in Capernaum? Matthew doesn't say. He just skips right through that white space between verses 17 and 18. Luke and John, on the other hand, um, actually fill it in a little bit in their versions of the story to say that, that between verses 17 and 18, um, perhaps there were some things that happened as Jesus did some preaching and teaching and healing the way he did, which leads me to the conclusion that, that when he asked them to follow him, this wasn't just a completely out of the blue ask, but rather um, that they had been hearing about him. For a time, time during which maybe even, maybe even after work once or twice, they'd gone to hear him preach, and and then they had maybe talked about his preaching too, and they'd even seen some miracles he did. Until finally, now after he, and his work, and the Holy Spirit too had been kind of working on them, and now after that white space comes verse 18 when he comes to them with the ask. When, says Matthew 4, 18, he went to Capernaum's beach where he saw two brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, who were fishermen, and they were doing some fishing, and he said to them, follow me, and we'll fish for people. And of course, it says immediately, there's no white space here, it says immediately, they left their nets and followed him. How could they immediately up and do that? We wonder. Except, you know what? I think his preaching and his teaching and his loving and the Holy Spirit had been working on them to the point that when he came lakeside and said, follow me, each of their hearts first skipped a beat and then each of their hearts whispered within them, how can I not? And so with no questions about salary or benefits or, or hours or 401ks, all of which were lousy, by the way, 
They just up and followed him as he kept walking on the beach and saw two more brothers, James and John, in their fishing boat with their dad, mending their nets. He called them, and once again it says immediately they left their boat, they left their father up and followed him too. Followed him to do what? Followed him, he said, to go fish for people. Important note. From the very beginning of Jesus calling others to come be a part of the plan that he and his father had, he didn't come call them to come and follow him just so they could come be close to him. From the very beginning, he called them to come and follow him so that they could be a part of how others, too, could be drawn close to him and close to his dad. Follow me, he said, and we'll fish for people. His first word on the subject of what it means to be his people, in other words, is that being his people, being his followers, being his church, means taking what he came to do and bring and reaching out with it to more people. Too many Christians, I think, and too many churches too, I think, too often forget that. And forgetting that, they think this faith stuff and this church stuff is just about they themselves personally being all cozy with Jesus. And thinking this faith stuff and this church stuff is just about them and Jesus personally, they quit reaching out to the world. And quitting reaching out to the world, they quit living into the world, changing calling. They were called by God for. And quitting living into the calling they were called by God for, they quit being the church whose head is Christ. For Christ's church comprises people called by God to live into the purposes of God and taking our cue from the two public things that Jesus opened his mouth publicly to say in today's gospel, which happened to be in Matthew's gospel, the very first public things he ever said. Living into the purposes of God goes like this. Turning from sin. Turning toward love. Love which is God's love come to us in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And then turning toward others with Christ's love, which, as will become very clear before the story is done, is love for sinners. All of which does not turn out to mean or look like exactly the same thing for a bunch of exactly the same somebodies. For surely not everyone is called to fish for people in the sense of dropping everything literally in order to become full-time missionaries or evangelists. But we all are called to fish for people in the sense of realizing that the love we have come in Christ to know we are by God loved with isn't ours to hoard, but ours to share. Sometimes, after all, someone might not necessarily need a sermon or a personal testimony. Sometimes, rather, what they might most need is the love of God loving them in whatever way it can and does because it's coming to them from you. You turning from sin. You turning toward love. And then you turning toward others with Christ's love, which is love for sinners. Or to say the same thing in the words Jesus used, repent. Follow me, and we'll fish for people. Amen.